Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on animals cooking, non-human animals, and cooking in the sense of uh, doing things to food before they eat it other than applying heat, because in the last episode we... uh, we talked about how humans are the only animals that regularly apply heat to their food on purpose to cook it, but animals do all kinds of other interesting things to their food before eating it. For example, we talked about uh, birds that that uh, sort of butcher and smash up and, and process their, uh, their their animal parts before they consume them in various ways, like the, the shrike making shish kebabs out of crickets and other critters and... Uh, was it the Lammergeier that uh, would, would smash the bones or the turtles? Mm-hmm, yeah. And, you know, I, I realized after we recorded that episode that there's another animal that that uh, that cooks that is a part of my weekly life that I forgot to mention. It's That Little Puff, an Instagram uh, account in which a cat is made to appear to cook various uh, items to try to replicate various sort of like TikTok uh, cooking trends and crafting trends, Um, sometimes to great success, sometimes uh, uh, it results in disappointing failure. Oh, if if you're familiar with TikTok cooking trends, there's one that I've seen by image alone. Do you can you explain the thing to me where somebody takes a big old wad of hamburger meat and they wrap it around dry pasta? What is that? Do you know what I'm talking about? Hmm. Well, I am only familiar with TikTok um, cooking trends that have been featured on that little puff. So I don't oh, okay. think I've seen the cat doing this to hamburger meat yet. So. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not the one to answer that question. Well, I mean, it sounds like a cat's idea. Well, to be clear, this cat is is not actually has not been trained to do anything. Um, it's uh, it's just uh, the appearance of a cat cooking uh, that they have uh, created here. Trick photography. Yeah, cats lousy cooks. They're not they're not interested in cooking. But to tie it into our first segment here, you know, one thing that that is great about cats is cats are very clean. You know, they enjoy They groom themselves. They clean themselves. They they lick all over to get the the dirt out of the fur. Actually, I don't know if that's why they lick. They they lick themselves. It appears to be for some kind of hygienic purpose. Uh, I have no idea what it's actually for. But that mirrors uh, some of the behaviors we're about to talk about in the category of animals washing their food before they eat it. Mm. And uh, Rob, I I don't know about your house, but... uh, I, I tend to be pretty fastidious about uh, washing fresh produce. Do you do the same? Well, you know, I don't want any grit in uh, whatever I'm cooking. And uh, certainly depending on the produce in question, you might get some grit if you don't wash it off well. Uh, if I'm making ants on a log, I want to make sure that I uh, I scrub uh, my celery sticks off before I, and then dry them, you know, before I actually uh, start applying the, uh, the peanut butter and said ants. Well, it turns out this is one of the food pre-processing behaviors that is not unique to humans. All kinds of animals exhibit various washing behaviors. And I I want to say washing with scare quotes, because in some cases, this may actually be related to cleaning dirt or other materials off of the food. And in other cases, it may have a completely different purpose. But in any case, it is taking a piece of food and washing it or doing something that looks like washing with the help of water. That's right. Um, I was reading about some of this in a, a paper titled Food Dunking Behavior by uh, an Eurasian J by Dearborn and Geiger, 
published in the Ornithological Society of the Middle East. Uh, they point out that crows and ravens have been observed to, quote-unquote, wash their food in fountains before eating it. Um, and they talk a little bit about how generally we see examples of this washing behavior in primates and birds, uh, washing or dunking. Um, and in both birds and primates, the two main theories seem to be that it's about washing or removing a thin coating from the exterior of the food, which generally that's what we're doing, uh, or it's about making the food easier to eat, uh, which is not something we're usually doing if we're just washing our produce in the sink, but it is what we're doing if we're, say, uh, dipping a particularly tough biscuit into a, uh, a cup of tea or something. Yeah, this is the old hardtack tradition, you know, armies of old marching around or sailing around with hardtack biscuits. A lot of times, you, like, you can't even eat these things straight. You can't just bite into them. You got to, like, dip them into your gravy or some other kind of liquid and then soften them up before you can consume. Yeah. So some of the examples that they mentioned in this paper from, from other creatures uh, are of carrion cr crows eating dry bread. This would be a situation where dry bread has been provided for them and they dip it before they eat it. Uh, killdeer have been observed uh, uh, washing muddy frogs off before they eat them. Macaques have been observed doing the same thing with sandy crabs. Um, captive monkeys uh, have been observed doing this with dry monkey chow. And then the Eurasian jay example studied in the paper I cited involves the bird in question dunking an egg in water and then eating it, though the researchers ultimately uh, remained, un they remained unclear about what that was all about. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, it seems like these washing, dunking, or dowsing behaviors are still uh, they're still unknown. We still don't know exactly what the cause is, though we have better ideas in some cases than in others. Uh, but uh, w one thing I was thinking about is that, um, you know, it may depend on your anatomy how important it is to douse something in external water before you eat it, depending on, like, how strong your salivary glands are. Because mm. we're doing the same thing, but it happens in our mouths. I mean, all the food you eat, it gets kind of, like, coated in saliva and moistened that way, and it helps lubricate the uh, the swallowing process. Doesn't that sound so appetizing? Yeah, well, I think we've, we've touched on this before, but actually quite recently, I think, talking about food and digestion but like mm -hmm. the, the the digestive process begins in the mouth like this is where food is initially uh masticated broken up broken down um uh, partially liquefied and then formed into that bolus that will then uh then be swallowed and continue the journey you don't want to be swallowing a dry bolus no no uh, but next, I wanted to think about one of the most famous examples of animals that appear at least to wash their food before eating it, and that is raccoons. This has got to be one of the cutest examples. I'm sure everybody out there on the internet at this point has seen the the, the heartbreaking video of the raccoon with a piece of cotton candy going to the water's edge <laughs> to wash it, and then it dissolving, and the, the raccoon looks just so sad. Uh, I, I don't think I've seen that one, but I'm, I'm picturing it. I can imagine it. So I found something out I didn't know before. You know, the, the word raccoon, the English word raccoon is uh, derived from a word originally in the uh, Algonquian languages. But do you know what the raccoon is called in German? No. What is it called? It is the Waschbär, the Waschbär, the bear that oh. washes. Oh, nice. And the same principle shows up in its scientific name, which is Procyon Lotor, which uh, means something like pre-dog washer. Uh, so a raccoon is something that's maybe not quite a dog, not quite a dog yet, but it is associated <laughs> with washing. 
And this etymology carries over multiple languages where the raccoon is uh, known as something like the washing bear or the washing dog or something like that. Uh, And it reflects one of the most notable characteristic behaviors of the raccoon, which is the fact that when they acquire a piece of food and there is water nearby, they will often dunk that piece of food in the water and then manipulate it, kind of put it in the water and swish it around a bit, maybe feel at it, paw at it, Mm -hmm. rub on it, and then retrieve it from the water and eat it. And it gives rise to the idea that raccoons are meticulous little neat freaks, that they're I don't know, hyperhygienic or germaphobes or something, washing every bit of dirt and grime from food before consuming it, uh, which is kind of funny when you think about other feeding habits of raccoons you might be familiar with, such as like getting into your garbage can and just right. eating the food in there. And they're not washing that food. They don't seem to be concerned about the dirt in that case. No, no. This is, of course, what has earned them the, the nickname Trash Pandas uh, before because they, yeah, they're, they're, they're straight up in the garbage can. Or certainly they will. They don't need to be by a stream to eat. Uh, you can you can find plenty of evidence of, of raccoons um, uh, eating without a handy washing station nearby. Right. So it's an activity that they do often enough that it's in the name. Like they're clearly known for it, but they don't always do it. It appears mm-hmm. to be optional, occasional, but again, common enough that it is. It has become a characteristic feature of the species. And so there's a big question, like, what are they doing? Are they actually trying to get dirt off of the food or are they doing something else? And there have been experiments that looked into this. So one study I wanted to look at was by Malcolm Lyle Watson, published in Proceedings of the Zoological Society of London in 1963, called A Critical Reexamination of Food Washing Behavior in the Raccoon or Procyon Lotor. Now, one thing this article says uh, that I, I found alleged elsewhere on the internet is that raccoon food dousing behavior, and it, it calls the behavior dousing instead of washing to uh, avoid prejudging the issue of the purpose of the dousing. So raccoons put their food in water very often, but we don't know exactly why they're doing it yet. So, so they say dousing instead of washing. So dousing behavior is something that the author here says is only seen in raccoons in captivity But I kind of doubt that. I've just uh, browsing around. I've read plenty of reports of people saying they observe this behavior in raccoons in the wild. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so, so I I don't know about the the only in captivity part. I guess the the detail here would be that in captivity, one generally has a a readily available supply of water. There is like a dish of water, or I, I did just watch that cotton candy video in the background. You know, this is a case where it looks like it is a raccoon in a captive environment and there is the the water for it to drink from. So it makes use of said water. Right. That's a good point. I mean, so captivity clearly provides the right setting and opportunities for this behavior to be observed. So maybe if it does occur in nature or if it doesn't, either way, we can at least admit that the majority of the times humans are witnessing this behavior, it is in raccoons in captivity. Hmm. But Lyle Watson says uh, before this study, opinion was divided into roughly two camps about what the purpose of raccoon food dousing was. He says that uh, some researchers thought that raccoons were actually washing their food, actively getting dirt off of it, and others thought that they were moistening it to make it easier to eat, you know, uh, to essentially lubricate it for the mouth, like we were talking about with the birds. 
And uh, before we go on to the actual experiments, I just wanted to note something from the paper that I thought was interesting. The The author actually makes a table of <laughs> observations of raccoons eating different kinds of foods and ranks them by which foods were doused the most often to the least often. So, uh, so if you look at this list, the foods that were doused the least often were things like corn, oats, and earthworms. And the foods that were doused the most often were crayfish, shrimp, water snails, land snails, crabs, locusts, cockroaches, mussels, clams, cherries, hmm. uh, grapes, eggs. And I'm reading down the list now, so I'm getting to about the middle. Uh, but one thing I thought was interesting is that a lot of the food items that are the most doused are animals that naturally live in the water. So I think they're being given to the raccoon probably uh, – already dead or, or out of the water when the raccoon receives them, but the raccoon is taking them to the water and dousing them and then eating them. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That is notable on this, this hierarchy here though. Of course, you know, you look at it too and you're, you're thrown for a curve on why the, the cherries are ranked so high, why the earthworm is ranked so low. Uh, uh, other things seem to make, you know, a certain amount of sense. So like, okay. Yeah. Well, corn is more or less good to go. Same with the pear. Uh, but so this study tried a, a couple of experiments to test the raining hypotheses, the food moistening hypothesis and the uh, active cleansing hypothesis. So as far as the cleansing hypothesis, uh, they said, well, okay, what if we try giving raccoons food that is dirty and then food that we've already cleaned off to see what the raccoons do with it? Will that make a difference? Like, will they clean, will they douse dirty food more than clean food? So this was tried with, quote, small mud crabs. So uh, they might forage for these in the wild and you might expect them to have mud on them. And so raccoons in captivity were tested with clean crabs and dirty crabs. And what do you know? It made no difference at all. In fact, uh, this was not a significant difference, but they doused the clean crabs more than the muddy crabs. Yeah. Yeah. So like if you were, if you were going to be desperate with findings from this study, uh, like this wouldn't even back up uh, the, the idea that they're washing anything. Exactly. So according to this experiment, it, it makes no difference at all. It's just sometimes they dunk and sometimes they don't. And it, it, ha it appears to have no relationship whatsoever to the amount of mud. So that's taken as a hit against the active cleansing hypothesis. But what about the moistening action uh, idea? So what if the point of dousing is to is that wet food is easier to eat? Well, they tested this with an experiment as well. Um, so Lyle Watson says uh, there was a series of three trials with uh, choices between dry dog biscuits, dried shrimps, and similar objects which had been soaked in water. And the result was, again, the raccoons showed no significant difference at all. They were just as likely to dunk and douse wet food objects as they were to douse dry ones. Hmm. So both of the active hypotheses at, uh, at the time of the study in 1963 were disconfirmed by the experiments that Lyle Watson did. So what does the author here think that the, uh, that the dousing is actually for? Well, he has an interesting idea. Of course, this is not conclusive, but this is his interpretation. He, he says um, that the best explanation is that raccoon dousing of food is, quote, an artificial creation of a natural situation whose function is to allow the expression of a thwarted independent feeding mechanism. So I think what he means by this is that a raccoon, when dousing food, is going through the motions of an instinctual water-based foraging or hunting strategy that is 
that is naturally rewarding, you know, in the same way that, that hunting or foraging behaviors are to all kinds of animals, you know, we're motivated to do them and it's rewarding to the raccoon's brain and associated with the acquisition of food, even though in these captive scenarios, it's not actually doing anything. Hmm. Now that, that's interesting because that would mean it, it's not adaptive. Well, it would be it would be adaptive that a raccoon has a natural desire to like fish around in the water for food mm-hmm. items, but that maybe this this urge is so strong it's coming through even in moments where it doesn't actually need to forage. It's just okay. satisfying an overwhelming desire. And he gives a comparison. So what Lyle Watson says is quote the raccoon's behavior is perhaps most closely related to what may be called the quote revitalizing behavior of certain Felidae cats. A captive cat whose hunting patterns of behavior are starved by virtue of the fact that all food is presented dead will artificially create the opportunity to satisfy these responses by throwing (laughs) a dead bird into the air and, quote, giving it life in order that it may be hunted down and caught before being eaten. This has been particularly well observed in the golden cat or Felis uh, Taminki at the London Zoo. And uh, so, so yeah, in the same way that you might see a cat that doesn't actually need to hunt, kind of batting a food item or even like a dead mouse around as if like it's still alive and maybe the cat is trying to, to satisfy some need for hunting behaviors just because the hunting behaviors are instinctually rewarding. Perhaps the raccoon is doing something similar by fishing around for a food item that it actually already has in possession in the water. Hmm. Okay. And and so in this, it would be comparable to like the play we observe in cats. We think of it as play. They're playing with a toy, but it's of course hunting instinct that, uh, you know, that they've, they're highly evolved to partake in. And if it's, if, and, and if, even though there's nothing live running around your living room, uh, they need to engage in that kind of activity anyway. Right. They have an instinctual drive for, for hunting behaviors they can't actually hunt in their environment because there's nothing to hunt. So they, they kind of hunt in superfluous ways, hunt in ways that are not really necessary. And so, uh, and so Lyle Watson links this to the idea that this behavior is primarily observed or in his, in his belief only observed in raccoons in captivity. You know, normally they'd be out fishing around for crayfish and crabs and stuff in the water. In captivity, they don't have to do that. So they satisfy this drive by swishing their food items around in the water. I've I remember hearing before that the like the hands of the raccoon are extremely subtle. Uh, yes, and that they're not affected uh, by the like they can reach into cold water and feel around in cold waters with a tolerance that that humans are completely incapable of, and that their feeling of things in the water is more uh, in line with like human sight. Like that's how sensitive their little hands are. Uh, so yeah, the the sense experience of this. Um, uh, uh, it makes sense when you think about like this, uh, this sort of advanced uh, grasping that's going on. This uh, this advanced sense of touch. Well, that's actually the next thing I was going to get to. That that is the the other hypothesis that seems to be live about uh, why raccoons douse their food is the idea that somehow it is it hypercharges the sensory abilities of their paws. And exactly like you're saying, uh, raccoons are. 
known in the animal world for having incredibly sensitive forepaws. Apparently, they they gather a large proportion of their sensations of the world through touch. Uh, And of course, this is very useful if you're an animal that's like rooting around in muddy water for for prey. You know, you want to be able to get a lot of information by the the pads on your forepaws, on your, your hands and fingers. And so it has been argued that maybe the dousing behavior is related to the hypersensitivity of their forepaws and the importance of the sensory information they get there. Uh, So perhaps moistening of the forepaws actually makes them more sensitive to textural information about the food in hand. So if this hypothesis were correct, it would be that dousing serves the purpose of letting the raccoon get better sensory information about the food they are about to eat in the type of sense uh, sense realm that is most relevant to them, which is touch. So it would be sort of similar to a human looking at a morsel of food by holding it up to the light so they could get a better look at it, or you know, a dog really going to town sniffing a piece of food before they eat it. That it would be a specialized sense-heightening behavior that is particular to the sense regime of the raccoon. Ah, now this, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, it also makes that cotton candy video all the more heartbreaking because yeah. it really wanted to understand this, this, uh, this sugary concoction. What is this thing? Well, let me do- d- douse it in the water and feel it a little bit more. What? Now it is completely gone. Now I, have, I, have, I know even less about it than I did before. But anyway, I, I'm intrigued by both of these hypotheses. I don't know which one I would lean more toward the the sort of uh, the the hypercharging sensory data from the from the hands or the thwarted natural uh, foraging behavior. Uh, both both seem possible to me based on what I've read. The interesting thing about the idea of a thwar- thwarted foraging behavior is that um, it would seem to connect to that that list of foods that are doused most often, that the top of the list was all like aquatic animals that the uh, raccoon would naturally forage for in in the creeks and in the mud. Mm-hmm. But Rob, if you're ready, I would actually like to turn to another example of animals doing something to their food that looks like washing but has been hypothesized to have a different purpose altogether. And this is related to seasoning. Ah. So in the last episode, uh, we spoke in whispers of horror about the idea of eating an unseasoned potato. You know, potatoes are great. They really need some salt and pepper, uh, hopefully some fat of some kind, butter or oil or something to take them to their full potential. Just, just the thought of a, a completely unseasoned cooked potato is is uh, is very unappetizing. Yeah, even if you have one of those uh, those really good potatoes, you know, like those fingerlings and the purple potatoes and uh, of course sweet potatoes, even then they need a little something. And if you get into the the the, the realm of the russets, all the more. Now, as always, of course, you know, our food preferences could be just cultural preferences, but I think it's clear that a really important part of human cuisine uh, in general is seasoning. Maybe not to the same extent in every single culture in the world, but broadly all over the planet, people like to season their food. Uh, And seasoning amounts to augmenting the natural flavors of bulk foodstuffs in our diet with uh, with highly flavor relevant little little bits of ingredients, usually things like herbs, spices, and probably most importantly of all, salt. 
Uh, now, there's a reason humans have a taste for salt. Salt is not just a nice-to-have. It is biologically essential, uh, not in the quantities that, that we Americans eat it. You know, the, 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 we, we weigh more salt than we need. But you, you've got to have some salt. Without any salt, you, you would be in a bad place. And we talked about this uh, to some extent in our episodes about the science of thirst. Remember, uh, you know, the things about how you've got to have the right uh, balance of osmolality in, in your blood, like yeah, the, the amount of uh, substances, especially salt dissolved in the blood, is relevant to the functioning of cells. Without salt, your body just doesn't really work. You need some salt. Yeah, and likewise, you're cooking a stew or a soup or just about anything. Uh, you often find yourself in that situation where you're adding salt to taste. And, you know, it's like, oh, it's not quite there yet. A little more salt. Not quite there yet. A little bit more salt. But the closer you get, the the more stressful it can become because you know that if you oversalt it, um, there's not an easy way back. There may not be a way back. That is a very good point, especially, yeah, if it's like one homogenous mass of food, like a, mm -hmm. like a soup or something, it's, it's really hard to take the, take the salt out, I guess, unless you just dilute it by adding more water or something. Yeah. But then you screw up the other flavor ratios. Yeah, it's just you don't want to oversalt. The, the, that's, that's hard to fix. Yeah, baby steps. Now, lots of foods that we would find in the natural environment already have some salt content. You know, uh, vegetables already have salt in them. If you, uh, you know, like a, like a stalk of celery actually is, you can almost taste that celery is naturally a little bit salty. You can sort of taste the sodium in there. Uh, of course, meat already has salt in it naturally. Most people would add more salt to, to season it, but it has some uh, sodium content there already. But we want more. And uh, why, why is it that we want more? It's, well, it's because the concentrations of salt that we naturally find in meat and plants in the environment, it's fairly low. And salt is necessary for survival, so our bodies are shaped by evolution to seek out extra salt however we can get it. And lots of animals acquire salt not just from food, but from mineral reservoirs known as salt licks, or more accurately, mineral licks. Again, because Salt can, in the narrow sense, be taken to imply just sodium chloride, and sodium is not the only electrolyte or mineral that animals need to supplement in this way. Animals are also looking for calcium, iron, zinc, phosphorus, and so forth. Uh, but uh, the idea of a salt lick is interesting to me because I, I was reading about them, and what I had always pictured for a salt lick when I was growing up was that there's a deer – specifically a deer, and it's licking a white rock that has the desired minerals on its surface. And while this scenario does happen, apparently a lot of times a mineral lick can also consist of like a place where animals come to sort of eat dirt or mud or clay that has the molecules they're looking for. Uh, but of course, humans do something pretty interesting, which is that we combine the quest for supplemental salt with the broader quest for nutrition by salting food directly. The result is clearly more than the sum of its parts, because after all, salt doesn't just make food taste saltier. I think humans mostly know from experience that it makes food taste more like itself. A little bit of mm. salt seems to magnify the natural flavors present in whatever you're eating. So salt makes chocolate taste more like chocolate and salt makes broccoli taste more like broccoli. It's just a general flavor intensifier. Yeah. Even things that don't need salt at all, like a, a really good slice of watermelon uh, is, is perfect on its own. And yet sprinkle a little salt on there and you've managed to intensify even that. Yeah. It becomes hyper watermelon. Mm-hmm. 
And because of these obvious, you know, sensory and pleasure benefits, uh, the complement of supplemental salt to food, you might wonder, well, do any non-human animals season their food like we do? Do they combine the quest for food with the quest for supplemental salt into a single consumption activity? And you might assume no, but I came across a really interesting surprise here. So I want to turn to a uh, actually rather famous episode in the history of primatology, but famous for uh, a different reason than we're going to be talking about it. And that is the potato washing monkeys of Koshima Island in Japan. Mm. Rob, have you ever heard about these before? Uh, I don't believe I have. Um, you know, I, I, some some of this came up in my research, but I, I knew that you you had the primates firmly in your side here. Well, I want to briefly mention, uh, cite a couple of papers as sources here for what I'm about to talk about. One is by uh, Masao Kawai called Newly Acquired Precultural Behavior in the Natural Troop of Japanese Monkeys of uh, on Koshima Inlet uh, in the journal Primates in 1965. And then the other one is a book chapter uh, – called um, Sweet Potato Washing Revisited by Satoshi Hirata, Kunio Watanabe, and Kawai Masao. Uh, the last author is the same as the uh, author of the, the paper from the 60s. Uh, this was published in Primate Origins of Human Cognition and Behavior in 2008. Uh, so first of all, one thing we should say is that everything we're about to describe is not a behavior observed purely spontaneously in the wild, but one that is at least in part a result of human intervention. So the entire story here comes with that caveat, but it's very interesting nonetheless. So on the island of Koshima in Japan, there are native populations of a monkey called, uh, the scientific name is Makaka Fuscata, also known as the Japanese macaque or the snow monkey. If you've never seen one of these, you should look them up. I think they're very cute. They are. They're quite cute. They have very soft-looking fur. I, uh, I know one shouldn't feel this way about wild animals, but I want to pet them. <laughs> uh, but anyway, beginning with some papers published in, uh, by a scientist named Shunzo Kawamura in the 1950s, researchers began to document an interesting behavior among a single troop of monkeys on Koshima Island, and it was washing their food. So the history went like this. Uh, in the early 1950s, Several Japanese researchers began providing food in the form of sweet potato pieces to the monkeys on the island. And I read in a book passage elsewhere that the original purpose of, of giving them the food like this was to lure the monkeys out into an open space near the waterfront where it would be easier for the researchers to watch them, to observe their behavior. And I think part of the intended significance of this uh, of this study was that it, the scientists would end up making long, multi-generational observations of the same monkey troop with mm -hmm. individuals in the troop named and differentiated so that their individual behaviors could be documented. Uh, but, of course, the monkeys liked the extra food. They liked the sweet potato pieces. But the real twist came in September of 1953 when a young monkey, a one-and-a-half-year-old female uh, named Emo, appeared to have invented a new behavior, she washed her potato. Mm. Uh, now, washing was not previously part of the behavioral repertoire of these monkeys, but apparently Emo was reacting to the fact that these sweet potato pieces left out on the ground, they would get covered in sand and dirt, which, even if you're a monkey, is apparently not the best thing to eat. So, in September 1953, Emo started washing the sweet potatoes, uh, so the standard sweet potato washing behavior is described as the monkey taking a sweet potato piece to the edge of the water, 
um, and then uh, dipping the potato into the water, holding it in one hand, and then removing the sand or grit by brushing the potato under the water with the other hand. This potato washing behavior became famous because it was taken as evidence of the existence of, quote, culture in non-human animals. Uh, because, again, according to Masel Kawai uh, in the paper from 65, by 1956, 11 monkeys in the troop had acquired the behavior and had themselves become potato washers. And across subsequent research periods after that, the behavior continued to spread to more and more of the troop. Now, we could probably come back and do a whole episode on the idea of uh, whether this should be viewed as analogous to human culture. But on its face, it, it seems to have a lot of properties that look like culture. It's a behavior that is not instinctual to the animal, but is learned and then is spread apparently from one individual to the other in the troop through a process of copying, eventually becoming the norm for the entire animal troop. But then on the other hand, there are interesting questions about this and, and, and differences from how we normally think of culture. Uh, for one thing I thought was kind of interesting in this instance, uh, the learning process seemed to work backwards from the way human culture is presumed to pass across generations because it looks like sweet potato washing started with younger monkeys and gradually spread to the older ones. Like uh, they said that Emo's mother apparently learned the potato washing behavior from Emo. Oh, well, I mean, we, we mentioned TikTok trends earlier. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. And, you know, TikTok trends are often uh, associated with with youth culture. So that could be a case. Uh, there could be a case to be made where, yeah, you do have things that originate with the young people, with the youth, and then they are passed upward uh, to older members of a, of, a, of a population, of a culture. I, I guess so. Yeah, maybe it's the, the youth innovate and then the elders educate. Mm-hmm. But then certainly it does it does uh, run counter to the sort of idea of of elders in a given group saying this is the way this is right. the way we handle potatoes this is the way we wash potatoes obey me younglings but but here here's where we're about to get to the part that's relevant to the idea of uh, animals seasoning food so I wanted to read a passage from that paper by Kawhi in 1965. Uh, the background on, of this section is that the author is describing two distinct variants of sweet potato washing behavior. One in which the sweet potato is, like I described a minute ago, dipped into the water with one hand and then brushed with the other hand to remove sand. The other variant is known as, quote, rolling, and it consists of letting the sweet potato drop into the shallow part of the water and then rolling it back and forth with one hand before retrieving and eating it. Uh, but now to read from Masao Kawai, quote, But during the second period, a third type appeared. It consisted in dipping the potato into the water every time after gnawing it once or twice. This behavior seems quite different from brushing the sand off from the potato. They collect potatoes and take them to the seashore. But if this is not for the purpose of washing, what reason is there in this behavior except for seasoning the potatoes with salt water? Therefore, I will call this behavior the seasoning behavior. Huh. So obviously the behavior of repeatedly dipping the sweet potato into salt water every time the monkey takes a bite that could have other interpretations, but the seasoning interpretation seems to be a, a pretty good one. Like why else would they be dipping it again every time they take a bite off of the, off of the, the piece of food? Yeah. You could see this as something yeah, that emerges out of, out of purely, uh, you know, the uh, washing behavior, but then they grow to realize, yeah, if, if the, the potato has been dipped in salt water, it is more satisfying. 
Uh, and it, of course, is not only uh, enhancing taste, it is, uh, it is also supplying something that the monkey's body needs. Exactly. So uh, I would say that I think the seasoning interpretation of this behavior is not conclusive. We don't know for sure that's what they're doing, but it, it seems pretty valid. Like it seems certainly on the table. Uh, of course, as we talked about before, a potato tastes so much better with some seasoning. The same goes for a sweet potato. Uh, so yeah, could it be that this is not only an example of cultural transmission in non-human animals, you know, monkeys learning a non-instinctual behavior uh, from one monkey to another within the troop, but also an example of cookery culture, cuisine emerging. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fascinating example. Now, uh, in putting together these episodes, uh, you uh, assembled a list of different things that were part of of human food culture, uh, culinary practices, uh, that we were using a sort of a, a, a guide to try and look for behaviors in the animal world that yeah, more or less line up with them. Uh, like, for instance, we, we talked about uh, the processing of food, the but- butchery practices, of course, of the butcher board, the, the shrike, uh, the lammergeier. Uh, you know, and to a certain extent, you could make an argument that any kind of predator that doesn't eat its prey whole is engaging in some sort of butchery, right? It's if it's selectively eating parts of the corpse, uh, of the, the, the cadaver, um, then you could make at least a weak case for this. Yes, though, when I, when I start thinking about uh, human butchery, you know, one thing my mind goes to is like the classic butcher's tools, the tools you see mm-hmm. next to the, the big old uh, wooden block that the, the animal would be taken apart in. And of course, you've got your knives, and yeah. that would be related to, you know, uh, the, the things we've already been talking about. But another butcher tool you often see is that big old hammer. What's that That's hammer right. for? For tenderizing uh, the meat. Uh, so for many of our tougher foods, the material must be made tender prior to cooking and or consumption. The tenderization of meat with a hammer or mallet or masher is a great physical example of, of this, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it also essentially busts out some extra chewing prior to cooking. You know, <laughs> you don't want to spend uh, X amount of extra time chewing that meat or in many cases, like chewing that potato or whatever it happens to be. Let's break it down a bit physically before it goes into our mouth. But of course, we, we don't just tenderize uh, foods with hammers and mallets. We also tenderize them chemically uh, via special enzymes as well as via mixtures like vinegar and broth. And when we apply a marinade, we're not only flavoring the matter we intend to cook or, and, and or eat, but also we're softening it up. And again, this is a chemical breakdown that occurs inside the body as well, beginning in the mouth. Now, we've discussed some methods of externalizing this process before, uh, and they, they bear at least a quick mention here. Houseflies consume their food as a liquid diet. So first, a housefly scrubs food with the, uh, that it finds with bristles on the end of its uh, proboscis, freeing up food particles. So think of these like dusty food particles that the um, the housefly has found, and then it vomits up a slurry of saliva and digestive juices. And in doing this, it's kind of like adding hot water to instant oatmeal mix. Um, you know, so if, if you're being very generous with the term, you could say a housefly is cooking, uh, uh, sort of. And then of course it slurps all of it up. I love that. Yeah. So it's it's cooking right from its own gut. Yeah. 
Uh, spiders are also another great example. They'll inject digestive juices into the bodies of their prey to break down the insides, you know, particularly prey that's uh, been uh, paralyzed or, uh, or wrapped up in webbing. Uh, and then after this, um, these juices have uh, had time to work, they can simply drink the insides of the prey that they have captured. I believe we did a whole episode on mm-hmm. what this would be like, uh, what yep. would it would be like to be eaten by a spider. It was called I Was Eaten by a Giant Spider. Um, yeah, that was a fun one, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's also worth noting that these various means of tenderizing organic material, you know, it's, it's also comparable to the process of decomposition. So we might well loop in natural decomposition into this category, especially for scavenger creatures who take advantage of such conditions. They can take advantage of food uh, material that has been softened by decomposition, and they have evolved to tolerate uh, levels of decomposition that other animals would not be able to handle. Now, that that brings up an, another question. Uh, uh, how about fermentation? That was another one we had on the list. Uh, are the, you know, there are plenty of examples of animals that consume fermenting fruit, for example, but are there examples of animals that are more actively involved in the fermentation process? Uh, I couldn't uh, really find any good examples, but again, we could roughly file fermentation under the category of decomposition. So animals like elephants, birds, and monkeys that eat fermented fruit are also taking advantage of this process. And, and on that note, I'd like to touch on just a few examples of, of animals that get involved with a couple of other activities that are, that are you know, highly important to human food culture. Uh, the storing of food, but then also um, agriculture itself. So first, on the, the, just on the topic of, of hoarding food, of, uh, of creating a cache of food that one can, uh, can uh, turn to, uh, especially during the winter. Uh, there are numerous examples of this, and we could easily talk about chipmunks and squirrels and whatnot. But uh, I wanted to talk just a little bit about uh, a, a super predator of note, um, and that is the mole. <laughs> super so, predator mole? Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're an earthworm, uh, the mole is the, the ultimate destroyer. It is the super predator of the earthworm world. Uh, it eats nearly its weight in worms and similar subterranean creatures every day. Uh, and uh, it's it's impressive, but of course this is standard hunt and eat behavior, right? Nobody's going to accuse the mole of engaging in uh, you know culinary activities here by gobbling its its weight in earthworms every day. But where it begins to mirror some aspects of human food culture is that, like many other animals, moles also stockpile food for leaner times. Uh, while various rodents uh, famously stockpile nuts and humans stockpile all sorts of foods, the mole creates a horrifying subterranean dungeon of living worms. And this is a, an example of larder hoarding. Whoa. Living worms? Yeah. Or uh, in some cases, you might say um, sort of half living worms, I guess. <laughs> creates a limbo of worms. <laughs> a limbo of, of worms, yeah. So I was reading about this in a Tree Hugger article by Russell McClendon, uh, citing a Mammal Society species overview uh, article. And it points out that the moles have a worm-paralyzing toxin in their bite, but they also will just bite the heads of, of an earthworm to ensure a debilitating but non-fatal injury to said worm. And then... You know, they'll eat a lot of worms, obviously, but then they'll start dragging them away and uh, they'll create these chambers full of still living worms 
that they can uh, munch on through the, the leaner months. Uh, single, single mole chambers have been found to contain as many as 470 live earthworms. So that's about 820 grams or 1.8 pounds of still living, uh, still writhing earthworms for them to eat. Wow. This one, like I say, I feel like it's a more uh, grisly and alarming example of the sort of thing we're used to. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's storing nuts for the winter. No, this is storing live earthworms in a big dungeon for the winter. Now, we would be remiss if we didn't at least touch on a topic that, of course, I think we, we've, we've discussed in, in greater uh, length before in the past. But uh, bee honey, uh, you know, um, this is the the sweet food stuff produced by the honeybee as well as some other bee species. And honey is basically, yes, bee vomit. Uh, we have uh, uh, enzyme activity playing a role in this as well as water evaporation, transforming mere sugary organic secretions of, of usually plants into an ideal storable food. So in this example, we see both food uh, production and storage. Uh, so it's one we're all familiar with. We all know where honey comes from. We know the miracle of honey. It's one of the great um, achievements of the animal world, certainly of the insect world. But it's also one we're so familiar with, we kind of, uh, it's easy to forget the wonder of it, to overlook the wonder of what is being achieved here. And then another prime example uh, from the insect world uh, concerns uh, the marvel of the leafcutter ants, of which there are around, I think, 47 identified species. They cultivate their own crop of fungus, growing it on harvested leaf clippings. In some cases, these uh, fungus species are entirely dependent on their ant masters. Uh, you know, we're talking like extinct in the wild situations. Uh, but it is, uh, I mean, these are, uh, these are in, in complex uh, uh, societies of these uh, leafcutter ants. But uh, what they are practicing here is, is agriculture in a nutshell. And they've been practicing it for, uh, for a, a period of time that dwarfs uh, human agricultural practice. They got a stew going. They do. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's neat to kind of look at some of those examples, especially because they kind of forecast what humans would come to do. Like what humans are doing with their food is certainly an advanced model uh, compared to anything going on in the human world. Uh, but it's not unconnected. It's not, uh, it's not an island. You know, uh, you, you see shadows of what we are doing uh, in these other uh, practices, in these other approaches uh, to life. And uh, so, yeah, what we're doing is just kind of the, uh, the human complication of that. All right, we're going to go ahead and close out this episode. But, you know, uh, we would love to come back in the future and discuss uh, the cuisine of non-animals a bit more. So if you have particular favorite examples of this, or if there's something in the animal world that you would like to personally make a case for, um, or is just something you've observed, uh, write in and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, you know, we were just chatting a few minutes ago off mic that you know there are a number of different leads uh, for this uh, episode that we didn't have time to look into. So uh, yeah, we could easily come back in the future and do a third episode if uh, you, the listener, desires it. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, Listener Mail on Monday, Artifact or Monster Fact on Wednesday, and on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just focus in on a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.